This afternoon, we confess together the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 38. That is question and answer 103. What does God require in the fourth commandment? In the first place, God wills that the ministry of the gospel and schools be maintained, and that I, especially on the day of rest, diligently attend church to learn the word of God, to use the holy sacraments, to call publicly upon the Lord, and to give Christian alms. In the second place, that all the days of my life I rest from my evil works, allow the Lord to work in me by his Spirit, and thus begin in this life the everlasting Sabbath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you arrested on the seventh day and that you are uh, in your eternal rest. Now you've given a rest to us, a celebration of your work in Christ alone. Uh, and we celebrate that day um, each Lord's Day Sunday. Help us, Father, to understand uh, what the obligations of Lord's Day uh, worship is and how that relates to the greater uh, purpose of the church. May we hear about our sin in the gospel of Christ as well, as always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And that is found on page 1007 of your pew Bibles. Once again, we hear from God's Word, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Brothers and sisters, this is the Holy Word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through this curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Word of God so far. Congregation of Christ and Friends. This is our final sermon in the series, an introduction to the Reformed faith. And in this sermon we'll understand the purpose and the obligations of the church. If you understand the purpose of the church, you will understand its obligations. There are many Reformed churches today that are not clear at all about their purpose. And typically, unhappily, these churches are very clubby. The people and the leadership within them begin not to care about the gospel going to the lost. People come to worship, which is basically going through the motions. It's like standing up to do the Pledge of Allegiance for the billionth time, not caring or thinking about the words. The members largely ignore visitors and gather together in cliques. This is not an unfair assessment of some of our own churches which have lost their purpose. A confessional Reformed church should be very clear about its purpose because its confessions are clear about the purpose of the church. 
So to summarize what our own three forms of unity say, uh, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and Canons, it could be something like this in terms of purpose. The purpose of the church is to gather, defend, and preserve God's elect through the ministry of word, sacrament, and discipline. If this purpose is clear in our churches, so will the obligation, obligations be of the members and the leadership of the church. So what are some of these obligations? There are many, but we have categories at least. Well, the uh, uh, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 38, uh, begins by saying that the ministry of the gospel and schools must be maintained. And of course, the ministry of the gospel is the ministry of the church known through the word, sacraments, and discipline. And ministers are needed for this task who are well educated. Well, what is the ministry of the gospel? And the author of Hebrews teaches a Christian's the comfort and joy of God's presence in Christ. And this is what it is to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The special presence of Christ is known in divine worship on Sundays, the Lord's Day. The marks of the church, the word, the sacraments and discipline ensure Christ's presence. So to review, we've covered these things already. Uh, the preaching of the word must be done correctly. That is not only the preaching, but the teaching of the word, uh, the absolution in the service, any word aspects of the service must be done correctly. The Bible must be comprehensively covered, uh, and the law and the gospel must be rightly uh, separated and distinguished. When a church does this, not only is it a true church, but also uh, the, the, uh, the members are rightly fed and God is glorified. Uh, secondly, the sacraments must be rightly administered. Um, that is the Lord's Supper and baptism. These are the means through which God's people grow. The recipients of uh, those means of grace are important too. Uh, though that's why we fence the table and that's why infants are baptized as we argued this morning. Those are marks of a true church. And then finally, uh, discipline is a mark of the church uh, through which people are rightly administered or ministered to and uh, God is glorified. And really, I think uh, the third mark of the church is, is maybe one of the most misunderstood marks. Because typically, you know, people say, Oh, that's just like the church. They want to tell people what to do. It's all negative. If you do something wrong, get in trouble. The church wants the metal in your life. Well, that's not true at all. There are negative aspects to church discipline, which is if somebody is in, an un, uh, in rebellion against God, unchecked sin, that they have to be talked to. They have to be brought into line in terms of the scriptures. But also, there's a very positive aspect to the third mark. Um, one of those is seen in this passage. Uh, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So there's a broad aspect to church discipline. That is, you look after each other. You pray for one another. You help people with meals, to move, whatever it is. Um, and uh, you're there for others when they need somebody to talk to. So it's not just the officers of the church. It's everyone in the church that is involved in this third mark. And I think a great metaphor for the church is the body or a family. You are a family, not just uh, guys that are getting together on Sunday. 
So the discipline of the church is very important. So through these two, these three marks, words, sacraments, and discipline, uh, the gospel is rightly understood. It must be preached, and it is received by people in this context. Well, also, along with uh, the gospel ministry, there needs to be uh, educated ministers. So the scriptures are clear that churches need officers, that is, ministers, elders, and deacons. But the Heidelberg uh, Catechism here is emphasizing the need for educated ministers when it says schools. Schools must be maintained. And what is implied here is that ministers must be educated generally in secondary schools and particularly in seminaries or their equivalent. So we can't really say that one has to go to seminary. If they have the equivalent of seminary in its training, that's fine too, ordinarily. And um, our, our federation, that's true in other denominations as well. And this is, all of this is so because uh, ministers teach and preach God's word, and they must be clear about the law and gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, for an example. <clears throat> we are ambassadors for Christ, God making this appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And one more verse, uh, 1, Corinthians 4, chapter, or 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The apostles and ministers who follow their teaching are ambassadors for Christ. That is, they must represent Christ accurately and responsibly, focusing on the gospel. Christians in the church and non-Christians who come to church must hear the gospel. But for this to happen, ministers who preach the word must know how to study the word of God. And many times it's the case, if a guy is a good speaker, if uh, he is charismatic in his personality, if he's a good business person, he makes a great pastor. But often uh, folks today are not trained carefully to know the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. They're not trained uh, theologically or historically. They must know these disciplines and must be tested by a body and approved. Otherwise, they should not be a minister. Again, this is so critically important because the Bible is a difficult book and it needs to be rightly approached and interpreted. But again, uh, ministers need to be educated to do that. After all, they are stewards in the mysteries of God. It's a really stunning uh, phrase. Uh, for God in this uh, Bible progressively unveil, unveils or reveals uh, the gospel, and you have to understand that this is good for the good of God's people. When there are faithful ministers in place, the elect are gathered together, defended against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and preserved by the word and sacraments. This does not mean that the ministry of the church assumes a static group of people which never changes. No. To gather the elect is to see people who do not believe come into church to hear the gospel. We don't know who the elect are, so the church must proclaim the gospel to all. 
As these people come to church and observe the worship of God's people and the Holy Spirit works in their hearts, they will fall on their face proclaiming that God is really among you, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If the purpose of the church is to gather, defend, and preserve God's elect through the ministry of the word, sacraments, and discipline, then it goes without saying that God's people must diligently attend church. So the Heidelberg Catechism, answer 103, understands that the fourth commandment means that you must diligently attend church or attend upon the means of grace. This is how you learn the Word of God. Uh, You use the Holy Sacraments, as the Catechism says. You call publicly upon the Lord and give Christian alms. It's an old word, alms, but it means uh, financial giving. The author of Hebrews also relates this command when he says in chapter 10, verse 25, Do not neglect to meet together as in the habit of some, but encourage one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the force of this command makes a lot of sense here in the context of Hebrews 10. The author is saying that because of the work of Jesus Christ, his torn flesh, you have confidence to enter into the holy places, by which he means into the very presence of God. And of course, you only do that through Christ. And so you are to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and your body washed with pure water. That is, you can draw near to God and enjoy closeness to Him because of the work of Jesus to cleanse you from your sins. Therefore, to draw near to God through Christ is to know and experience comfort, and it is to grow in your faith as you hear the Word and partake of the sacraments. So just a couple of things, particulars, in terms of faithful church attendance. The fourth commandment in Hebrews 10.25 demand that you attend church every Sunday. That's not a requirement of the officers of the church or the consistory. It's a commandment of God. This is your Christian duty and the way in which you will partake of the means of grace. Let's be honest. This sounds great to new Christians who are eager and hungry to learn God's Word and to know God. For those who have been around for a while, church becomes ordinary and boring. But let me say this. That's normal. Consider how the rest of our life is ordinary and boring. Virtually everything is like this. You grow up. You're excited to go to college, say. You get there and define it's not everything you thought it was. By the time you leave, you're glad to leave. You meet the love of your life, and you're so excited to spend time with her or him. You get engaged. You get married. Everything's so exciting, new, and fresh. But then after a while, you learn that marriage is a lot of work, and that a lot of times it's very ordinary. You get your first job, perhaps as a teenager, and you're so excited to go to work, you feel so grown up. But it's not many weeks before you are bored with your new job. And of course, as you grow older and have your family, uh, there, there becomes a sort of dread with work. The same old thing day in and day out. And added to this, uh, children, isn't this true? That you can get the newest game, 
of the newest video game or Xbox or bike or whatever it is, and you are at the beginning very excited about that game, but then it isn't long until you're sick of the game and bored with it. And how ironic, something that is designed to be exciting and entertaining becomes boring and unentertaining after a while. So it's in our nature to want new things. And when this is applied to the church, it is a tremendous error. Because people believe that if you can just change things a little bit, uh, change the perception of church, add, subtract, whatever it is, you will gather more people. And that is true. You will gather more people. But after a while, you're not doing church at all. It just becomes entertaining. So the same principle that applies to all of life must be applied to the church as well. That is, that if you are to enjoy something for what it is inherently, you have to work at it. Today, if you are to ask somebody to think, to read, to carefully consider something, to meditate, you think you're asking them to die. It's because, in part, our culture is going at, at, at light speed. And we don't think, we don't use our heads. We're not even quiet. Music, the TV, everything's blaring. We're going a million miles a minute. We never stop to even think. I mean, just going out in nature. To enjoy nature, kids are like, what is this all about? You know, where's the TV screen? And so that is why it's very hard to ask people to think about the Word of God, to pray, to be quiet, and to do that in church. But that is the Christian religion. It is a life of the mind, of the heart, of the soul. And it takes work in the sense of being thoughtful, of listening, of engaging oneself. And yes, it does take patience. And one has to grow in terms of their attention span. And churches today act and they do a terrible disservice to people when they say, well, just come, we'll make it all immediate for you. Well, what a rip-off. Because not, God's not immediate to us. No, God has revealed Himself in Christ. Christ taught His people. And they had to learn patience when they listened to Him. So why should we think that's any different in the church? And so this is very important to emphasize and discuss in our own age. Yes, there will be times when church is just very ordinary. And sometimes it will be boring. But that's not God's fault. That is the fault of a fallen world and fallen people who always want excitement. But here's the thing. If you're willing to be faithful to God, to come to church, to think, to meditate, to read, to think, then you will be blessed. Because there are deep, deep, comforty things in this word. But you have to want it in the sense of listening and hearing about your own sin and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the second part of this is that when you come to church, it's not good enough just to sort of sit there. You love the example of the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Bereans are commended because they look at the word of God carefully. Is the minister saying the word of God? 
What is he saying? What's going on? That's basically the sense of the Bereans. They're careful to consider the things of God. And so when you come to church, um, Erzinus talks about this in his commentary on the Heidelberg, it's, you're in contempt of God if you come here and space out. If you're just sort of twiddling your thumbs, not listening, not participating in the prayers, in the preaching of words, uh, God's word, Erzinus says that's contempt. It's like lying to God, saying, yes, here I am, a faithful person, God, but I'm not going to kind of listen and come in and out. No, you can't do that. You must engage your mind, engage your soul in the worship of God on Sundays. And of course, the rest of the week, it's important to uh, act and live like Christians, to meditate in God's word and follow his word. So finally, church attendance on the Lord's Day is not just about Sundays. It's also about the rest of the days of the week and the rest of your lives. The Catechism notes this when it mentions that the Holy Spirit continues to work in you all the days of your life. As you walk with Christ every day, you welcome the everlasting Sabbath in heaven. Think of that. Every day of your life, as you walk with God through Christ, and the Holy Spirit works in you, you're welcoming heaven. That is the day to which the author of Hebrews speaks when he says, the day drawing near. Sundays is a foretaste of heaven, and the rest of the week is resting not in your works, but in Christ's works. Well, finally, an obligation of the church itself is church planting. You enjoy the ministry of a true church, and part of the ministry of the church is to plant many churches, both here in America and overseas. Now, sometimes people will make much of the distinctions uh, between evangelism, home missions, overseas missions. Missiologists will, will do this a lot of times, and some of those discussions are very valuable, and they need to be nuanced. But overall, if you want to think about evangelism and people hearing Christ and experiencing His presence, you need to plant churches. So, if you're convinced of the Reformed faith, um, if you're convinced that it's a very accurate expression of God's word and apostolic faith, then you want to plant Reformed churches. I mean, there are a lot of churches in America, right? East Coast, West Coast, churches all over the place. But how many friends and uh, members of your family do you talk to who say, I can't find church? Well, what do you mean? The church is everywhere. There's one a block from your house. Well, no, it's not a church that honors God's word. Oh, I see what you mean. So we need to plant churches that are serious about God and his word, especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a crying shame that all of these alleged churches don't preach the gospel. You never hear about Christ. The service should be saturated with the grace of Christ. So therefore, we need to plant churches everywhere. And this relates to your personal obligations. Will you say, well, I'm not a minister or an elder. I'm not on any missions board or whatever. I mean, so what am I supposed to do? Well, by becoming a member of a Reformed Church, you are helping in the process by your presence, uh, but also you can help in terms of financial giving. Now, a lot of times what happens is once a church gets going, um, 
It feels like a stone once everybody's giving enough so your budget is met. No. You want to give so much money, the church is floating in it. It doesn't know what to do with all the money. Because what it will do with the money is to plant churches. Not to put gold on the pews or whatever, but to plant churches all over the place. Locally and overseas. I mean, what are there, six billion people in the world? And there are many people that have no church at all. So we need to be giving sacrificially so that we can plant more churches, not just to meet our own needs, but to plant churches all over the place. And so finally, you know, just another sort of very practical thing. Once we get into a church and we get comfortable, coming back to the beginning of this, uh, where Reformed churches can become clubby, uh, it's easy to become comfortable with each other uh, which is, you know, there's, it's good to know each other and to spend time. That's necessary. But also, we always want to avoid the Christian ghetto. Uh, that is, we need to have, as it's possible and natural, Christ, or non-Christian friends or co-workers or whatever. Now, that doesn't mean I have to go out and have a non-Christian friend. But, but don't retract from the world. Be comfortable to move throughout the world, maintaining your faith and moving as salt and light. And that has a very powerful effect. Look, we can have the flashiest programs, we can have lots of outreaches, but nothing is more powerful or organic than knowing non-Christians and knowing them well enough to have discussions about Christ and to invite them to church. And then they hear the gospel. Well, in conclusion, the purpose of the church is to gather, defend, and preserve God's elect through the ministry of the word, sacraments, and discipline. If this purpose is clear, and the church follows that purpose, the obligations of the church are clear. Then the church will be a place in which there is real growth and real evangelism. That is hearing the gospel, not only uh, those outside of the church, but those inside the church. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.